Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mind Rolling. And I'm Raghu Marcus, and I'm introducing this particular new podcast that is coming up here on New Year's Day. And Happy New Year, everybody, by the way. Hope everyone has a great 2016, and I hope our world turns a little bit in a more positive direction, and hopefully we can all make some contribution to that. This podcast uh, was recorded a few weeks ago at our retreat that we run, uh, Ram Das, uh, Krishna Das, and Sharon Salzberg, featured in Maui. And this particular podcast was a live thing that we did at the retreat, and it featured Duncan Trussell and Sharon, and its special guest, Pete Holmes. So it's a wonderfully entertaining podcast. Some of it's funny as hell, as you would expect from these two guys. And Sharon, uh, and of course Sharon's innate wisdom shines through as usual. So I love this podcast and hope, hopefully you will too. Uh, happy New Year, Happy New Year, and thanks for the support. We're like about a year old, MindPod Network. Well, more like. 14 months maybe, but it feels like, okay, it's about a year old. So I want to thank everybody for where we have gotten. We would not be here except for the support that you have given us. And I don't mean just monetary. I mean also just the energy that we get from, from everybody out there. Just uh, the appreciation, because it's, uh, you know, we're a little bit of an, in a vacuum here. I'm sitting in my little studio and uh, rapping away. Although we plan to have some more interactive stuff go on next year, by the way. We have some great things going on next year. Some exciting new podcasters. We've got the, the Life in Balance uh, retreat and course coming up. And it's all going to emanate through this beautiful heart-mind app from MindPod Network that'll be available as well. And and as I said, we're going to do more live. We did a couple this past year. They were great, where we got other uh, of our listeners involved and asking questions and, and giving some feedback themselves. And I think we're going to do more of that because we love that interactive aspect, and we'll, we'll involve it uh, with, with uh, more of the teachers and the uh, thought leaders that we have on the MindPod network. So uh, I want to go ahead and play this, uh, this segment, uh, again, that was recorded a few weeks ago from Maui, and, uh, and really, thank you. Thank you for being part of this family. It's, uh, it's been a wonderful experience for us. And, uh, of course, we appreciate the support, and we continue to need that support in, in order for us to produce these episodes and uh, these, uh, the online courses that we're going to be doing, the, the Life in Balance retreat, the, the app, and, and all of it. Uh, so, again, thank you, and here we go. This is Duncan Trussell, Sharon Salzberg, myself, and Pete Holmes on Mind Rolling. So I want to talk about uh, Ted Nugent. Oh, man. No, not that. <laughs> Please. He's asking me about God the other day. And, I, you know, as a concept, God. A lot of people have trouble with the word. And I said, yeah, I'm probably one of those people as well. I'm part of my Buddhist side or something. So you gave a wonderful explanation of, of just, it's just what you project about what that is. And, and you had this beautiful projection so that we, we're now calling God You want God me to tell Ted the Nugent. Ted Nugent story? Yeah, please. It's the, so offensive. It's okay. It's on the radio. It's going to be on the radio anyhow, or on the podcast. So. Cora's looking at me because she knows what this is. You guys, this is, forgive me, he, I did not invoke this story. He is fishing for this story. This isn't coming from me. But, uh, <laughs> so Ted Nugent does these guitar solos, long guitar riffs. And uh, sometimes I joke with Cora, my girlfriend, <laughs> that I think, 
when I was a child. I must have been molested while someone was playing Ted Nugent. <laughs> I told you, man. Because uh, whenever I hear a Ted Nugent guitar riff, it makes me feel dizzy and sick and sad and awful. So I think something awful must have happened when Ted Nugent was playing in the background. It's the only explanation. And so the God example is so many people, when you start talking about God these days, uh, they hate the word. They hate the word. They shut down instantly and they don't want to hear anything about God at all. Nothing. You can't say the word. You say the word and it, people really freak out. And the reason I think that this happens is because so many people have been raised in the families of fundamentalists, people, hardcore fundamentalists, who, uh, and I can't think of a more psychologically difficult situation to live in a place where people are, have a literalistic interpretation of some ancient manuscript. And so what, what ends up happening there is, that's a, that's a world of fear, you know? You're being constantly barraged with the word God, 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 God. But really what you're getting soaked in is shame, guilt, the feeling that you're not adequate, the feeling that you're always doing something wrong, the feeling that sex is bad, the feeling that marijuana is terrible. And this is happening all in the presence of the word God, 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 God. So no wonder when people hear God, they shut down. But it's not because the word is bad, it's because the word is triggering something that was programmed into them when they were very young. So. And that's the Ted Nugent connection. That's the Nugent connection, as the scientists so call it. We're going to call God Ted Nugent now, when it has that kind of And then he started calling God Ted Nugent, <laughs> which I'm sure Ted Nugent would love. Yeah, right. But uh, so it's uh, going back to some of what we were talking about the other day, because uh, we this all got brought up in relation to doubt, skepticism, and so on, related to people who hear about this stuff and they think, oh, maybe there's something there that can help me get onto a path of happiness at the very least or balance, right? Right. And so we talked about how, how is it that people can overcome that initial, like all of these stories, that's why we're talking about miracles, all these stories, of course, many people come to us and say, well, you know, it's fine this happened to you, but it didn't happen to us. We don't have any relationship with it at all. And uh, so pose the question, what, what is the question and what is the possibility for somebody who has that kind of skeptical doubt going on around what you're talking about on the podcast, for instance? Well, I think that uh, skepticism is really important and a wonderful thing. Uh, it's great. Skepticism is fantastic. And I, uh, I think anybody who hears anything about a clairvoyant man in a blanket living in India who can bring birds back to life, manifest apples out of his hands, no... no he, d he didn't manifest apples. Oh, then he wasn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> Sai I'm out of here. I got confused. Yeah. Wrong retreat. Uh, <laughs> it's next door. Those people are next door, right? But anytime you hear these stories, yeah. then the, the, the appropriate reaction should be skepticism. There should only be skepticism, and there should be, uh, I think, what goes really well with skepticism is experimentation. So it's not being skeptical is great. Uh, but you need to make sure that your skepticism is, is right, that you were correct in your assumption that these stories are ridiculous, that there was never a being who could do these miracles, that there is no God, there is no Christ, there is no Hanuman, no Ganesh, that we live in a universe of atoms that occasionally harmonize in a way that become self-aware, and that's called being a human being, and these are aerosolized by time and eventually you fade into the void and that's it, there's nothing. If you believe that, then you need to test that as much as you would test stories of Maharaja. You need to make sure you're absolutely correct about that. And so 
That's why I think it's important not just to be skeptical, but to have the courage, if you are curious at all about this sort of thing, to sit down in front of a picture of Maharaji, burn some incense, light a candle, take some liquid LSD, <laughs> or some other appropriate psychedelic, or not even that, but, but see what happens. I mean, I think that's the, that's the beauty of it is it's you see what happens. Because if, here's the end result of the experiment. If the end result of the experiment is nothing happens, then you had a cool night anyway, because you sat in front of a picture of a really interesting looking person and burnt incense in a candle. And that's a lot better than watching Nancy Grace. That's yeah, cool. That's true. So, but if something happens, if some contact happens, or if even the feeling happens, which to me is the most important thing, that feeling that you talk about, the feeling of coming home, that feeling of connection, the feeling of, oh, wow, that thing that I thought was gone when after my parents got divorced or my heart got broken or my mom died or the thing I thought was just a, a thing that inevitably is destroyed as you get older, that's always been inside of me just under the surface, only I wasn't able to access it. But are you kidding me? I get to live the rest of my life with access to that feeling, the feeling of my mother holding me, the feeling of being in, around a family, the feeling of connection. Wow, if you get even just a taste of that, then your entire life is transformed, which is why I think it's a worthy experiment. And that the skepticism, you have to analyze the skepticism and make sure that the skepticism is not actually something you're using to block out mm. that feeling, because the feeling comes with a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of change that comes along with that feeling if you've been living in a reality tunnel where everything is trying to eat you and it's a swirling doom void. Then it's a lot <laughs> of change. Doom yeah, void. there's a lot of change involved in going back into the world because if you are someone who has become a walking callus, then the odds are pretty good that you're surrounded by other walking calluses. And if <laughs> if you you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Like, she, like people who have frozen up, frozen down. And, 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 and that means that you've got to go back to those people and figure out a way to articulate that you've had a connection in some way with a disembodied man in a blanket. What are you talking about? You're one toke over the line, brother. You're one toke over the line. So it's tricky, and, and, I, and so I think that's why skepticism is sort of the last barrier between that connection. Mm. You know, like if you ever, I'm sure, well, I know you've done, if you ever been, I'm gonna use psychedelics, because for me, psychedelics really is the closest thing I, I have to articulate what this experience well, is. That's what Ramdas says. Right? <laughs> so, uh, but when you're, on, when you're tripping, when you're starting to come up on LSD, what I will do sometimes to avoid what's happening to me is I'll start thinking about the physio physiology of what's happening. Like, oh man, yeah, my synaptic vesicles are probably starting to release a lot of serotonin right now, which is the reason I'm starting to feel like this. And this is all a barrier in between the experience right. and my ego. And so, as a, as, so that's what skepticism, I think, is for a lot of people. It's a very useful thing to a point and then it becomes just a, a wall between mm. you and that incredible melting that can happen via this kind of practice. Pretty good, right? Thanks. <laughs> okay, but now we need some further help, you see. And I'm going to ask my beloved friend, Sharon Salzberg, who I see sitting in the audience innocently, <laughs> to come up here and uh, needs to elucidate skepticism and doubt. Hi. Hi. So I know that there's uh, definitive teachings <laughs> in Buddhism around using around skepticism but using experimenting testing 
that is really part of the canon, is uh -huh. it not? So can you talk a little bit about it? That's practice, that's something we've never really talked about. But he really needs this help, too. No, I learned it from him. I mean, it was, like, it was fabulous, really, you. what you said. Um, I, I agree. I think skepticism is a good thing. You know, you don't really want to be gullible. You don't want to... Because if you are gullible, then the, the power of the truth is not coming from within. It's just borrowed. You know, it's like borrowed radiance or reflected light. And... Uh, that could be great in the beginning, but we need it ultimately to come from within our, our own understanding. So skepticism is a, is a good thing. You also used, you know, Buddhists are very nitpicking about the use of language. So you use the term skeptical doubt, which would, which would be different than just like skepticism, you know, or, mm. or inquiry. You know, and that idea of skeptical doubt is that we're not going to take the plunge and experiment and find out for ourselves. We're going to stand back and be kind of cynical or dismissive, maybe. And so then we're not taking the risk to like go for it and find out for ourselves if something is true or meaningful or not. Right. So is there an actual, would you consider it an uh, antidote for some of the disturbing emotions and so on? Or, or shall we say more unbridled, enthusiastic reactions that we may have to the teachings and get, uh, get into unreal kinds of perception? Well, I think the first step is always, um, you could say, loving awareness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, to, 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 be, to come close to what we're experiencing and not and yet not in it, not overwhelmed by it. And, you know, it's interesting, I think, when uh, we fall in love. And in Buddhist teaching, that first stage of faith is likened to falling in love. It's so intoxicating, and it's amazing. And the image that's used is like you're in this dark, enclosed room, and then the door swings open, and you go, whoa, it's a bigger life than I had mm. dared to imagine. But that is just the first step. And then... Um, one problem with it is that uh, we can be very fickle. It's like you might meet one guru one day. For example, if it's the proximity of a guru that has that effect, you might meet one one day and you think, I'm surrendering, I'm following this person for the rest of my life. And then you meet another guru the next day and you think, well, forget that other guy, you know, like I'm going for him and we're just kind of jumping around. And, um, the biggest problem is that we get afraid or we kind of disown our own intelligence. You know, like, <clears throat> we won't ask questions. We won't um, ponder. We won't seek to know for ourselves because we're just, we're putting all the power in the other being, you know. And in Zen, there's this lovely saying I've always liked, which is something like, the goal of every good Zen master is to have students who surpass them. You know, and, and I think every uh, <clears throat> teacher, lama, guru with good motivation is coming from just that place. It's not about deference to their ego. It's about your own freedom. And so part of that process of your freedom is being able to ask and wonder and not be sure and check it out for yourself. I have to say, though, when I first met Ram Dass, because people ask me this all the time, uh, because I, I say I wasn't any different from you. I had no idea about anything. I, I wasn't, I didn't, Ramdas said these things about his guru. And I just took them uh, completely at, uh, as truth from him. And then when I saw him, I went out, I was working at a radio station, then I went out and grabbed him to bring him an interview him at the station after I'd heard a, a talk I just immediately trusted. I trusted him completely, and I just and then it was just okay. I got to get over there and, and experience what he did. And and he was so shining and radiant. You know, it was of course fun just to bask in that. And and I trusted that. I didn't think that I had much testing going on or anything like that. And I I wasn't a Hindu. I didn't know anything about bhakti yoga, and yet. 
So that was so. I was talking to Duncan the other day about that, and it, so there's one thing about if you lined up all of the. We had that picture here the other day with the people who had been in India. If you line them all up and and look at them and go, well, each one of these people trusted Ramdas in essence, and there wasn't. Is that blind faith? I don't know. Well, I mean, you can't use just because of, if you think that because there's the number of people who trusted someone, therefore means you should trust them. I, that's it's no good. Eh? It's no good. No. It's no good. Oh, if, if only it were, though, you know, because then there wouldn't be any work. And this is a question I had for you, Sharon. Uh, the, such, so wonderful listening to you, you teach. You are just incredible. And, and <laughs> but there was a question that I had. <laughs> Loving kindness. Yes. So in the, in the beginning, you are doing, <clears throat> when you do these loving kindness meditations and you use these words, varying words, may you be happy, may you feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel safe, these words. I was thinking to myself, and this is for you, Raghu, too, because your, your, your version of this is Maharaji, you've, you've cultivated this loving kindness, but I'm thinking of, of someone in the depth of a depression, which so many people are. Because you know what happens is you hear this stuff, it does get to you, mm -hmm. but you're laying in your bed, you can barely move, you feel like a, a, a mouse on a sticky trap, and you hear someone talking about may I feel love, may I feel safety. It's like if your foot had fallen asleep and someone is, is telling you about what it used to be like to feel. How do, you, how do you summon this? How do you cultivate this, so to speak, when your heart is the California drought and there's nothing there, dry as a bone, the, the concept of love, of fantasy, safety of fantasy, feeling, just feeling a fantasy. What's someone to do in that situation where they have a literal amnesia when it comes to even rec remembering what it was like to feel love? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it's interesting because I was going to say in response to what Raghu just said, um, that you know the questioning and the doubt and the uncertainty may have been about oneself more than, you know, I mean, Ramdas was uh, an exemplar, you know, for whatever reason. And it was onward leading, and you could go, you slept all the way to India, you know, and uh, it was an amazing thing. But there's a process, I really believe that. And for a lot of people, it's more about themselves than about um, the guru or the method or the, the context. Um, and yes, those times come, absolutely. And I think that's why, uh, one of the reasons why one of the great blessings, if it happens in a spiritual path, is a teacher or a friend. You know, it's somebody who's reflecting something to you that you absolutely, in that moment, can't find yourself. Because the problem, I think, the fundamental problem is not so much that you don't feel happy, it's that you don't feel you deserve to be happy. Mm. You know, and that it will never really come because you just don't deserve it. Right. And, and somehow it is reflected to you, and it could be a friend. Um, and in my tradition, like in Burmese Buddhism, uh, there isn't so much the concept of a guru. The word we call teacher is uh, kalyanamita, which means spiritual friend. Mm. Um, and so they say the Buddha was like the best of friends. Mm. He's the one you really wanted to hang out with, you know. Uh, but any friend who um, is motivated like that Zen master, you know, where their presence is reflecting something about you. And I think we who consider ourselves lucky or blessed in this life have had that from somebody even when we've been really, really down. And it doesn't have to be verbal. You know, in fact, it could be quite annoying if it's verbal. You're really a good person and you deserve to be happy, you know. But they know that that's true about you. And, and that's what they're reflecting and that's what you're getting. Hmm. Love everyone. We want to talk about that. 
I want to talk about your book and real love. Yeah, and uh, Duncan Sharon is writing a book called Real Love. So, what David is real? David thinks it should be called True Love. That's why he's <laughs> tilting his head at me. Real true love. Real, just real. Oh, it changed. <laughs> the real. What is real love? Um, that's a big problem. <laughs> what is real love? Well, we've been investigating it this whole time. We've been doing what, what the Buddhist canon suggests. Well, I talk about something in... Um, the book, and it's a little bit similar, I think, to what I was just saying, where uh, I had an experience when I went to, <clears throat> to Burma in 1985, where I did this intensive three-month period of, of loving-kindness practice, and I realized that one of the shifts that happened for me was that prior to that, I just kind of had the sense that love, the love I could experience was in the hands of someone else and it needed to be delivered to me like a UPS package. Mm -hmm. And that was very threatening because if somebody was bringing it to me, they could also take it away. And there's something that happened for me in that retreat where I realized deeply that as a capacity that existed within me and that other people might awaken it or nourish it or something, but it was not in the hands of someone else. And so I began to think of love as a capacity and mm. it's not the same as liking and it's not the same as having a good time with somebody or even with yourself, you know, but there's some profound sense of connection and belonging. Um, in my uh, much earlier book, Faith, uh, I, I talk about... Um, going through a period of despair. And uh, one of the things that happened in writing that book was that I had a, an editor I was working with and, and I was saying to her that within the Buddhist framework, I didn't really think doubt was the opposite of faith because doubt, the right kind of doubt, that kind of questioning and really wanting to know for yourself could actually deepen, it does deepen faith. Um, so she said, well, what's the opposite of faith? And I said, despair. You know, if faith is connecting to something bigger and despair is when that connection is just torn asunder. So she said, well, you know, you have to write about some experience of despair. And I said, I'd really rather not, <laughs> you know, but I did. And um, coming, uh, this was an experience I had when I was sitting in Australia. Um, and um, where some earlier childhood trauma really came back in a very powerful and overwhelming way. And I uh, found myself kind of coming out of it with a, um, a deep sense of this uh, section from Rilke where he said something like, um, do not be frightened if a sadness greater than you've ever known before rises up in front of you, life has not forgotten you. Mm. And there was just such a powerful sense of connection to something much bigger than my, my thing, you know? And uh, that was really the, the movement out mm. to it. Mm. So I think, I, I, sometimes I think I'm writing the same book. I'm just calling it Real Love instead <laughs> of Faith. Uh, Duncan? Well, this uh, is is despair a prerequisite? I don't know if despair is a prerequisite, but I think it it's uh, very common. You know, I don't think that I don't think like the dark night of the soul, you know, so to speak, has to happen. Um, but it often does, and it's not bad that it does; it just does. Um, I think not everybody is put together or has a kind of conditioning where there's such a sense of being abandoned by life or severed from others, you know, even when, when things get hard, but many of us do. The, um, I was talking with someone here, <clears throat> and they were saying that they were really enjoying this retreat, but a lot of heavy-duty heavy stuff, like what you were saying, was coming up for them. And um, I had that, too. 
this stuff bubbling up that is uh, so undigestible. And um, here, it, it, I can deal with it. But um, I've heard this twice now as we were walking and earlier when I was watching you speak, the person I was sitting next to leaned over and said, well, if we could shrink her down and, and put her in her pocket, I guess we'd have an okay life. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you live? I'll go. <laughs> but, 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 you, 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 this, this is, um, you know, here you are, here Agu is, you guys are this, these radiant beings. <laughs> I think so. <clears throat> and here you are luring us into this place where these things come bubbling up. And, uh, so my question to you is, how do we find the courage to cross past that place? How do you do it? Because I know for me, sometimes when the thing starts happening where you realize, oh, that time I got my heart broken 15 years ago, I'm still not okay. It's just right there, right under the, the, the this is the burrito in the car seat. You know, that's the car, the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the car stinks. And you forgot you like. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I've been there like a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know? In and this case, is, 15 years. Yeah. You just got used to the fact that your car smelled bad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that does happen. I know my mind went to the chapati in India. <laughs> Are they connected somehow, the burrito and the chapati? You know what I mean. You guys yeah. are showing us that we have these burritos stuck in our car seat that have been stinking up our car. And, 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 and getting, the, getting it out is, is and, and it really is, I'm making a joke, obviously, but it is sometimes when I come into contact with the, sh with the broken heart, I think to myself, well, I'd rather be numb mm -hmm. than feel this again. I don't want to go through this again. I'd rather just be absent. Numb, absent. Mm -hmm. So how do we get past that? How do we find the courage to overcome that? Courage. Well, I mean, I think first of all, I don't think we go through it at all in the same way. It's not like being six years old or being, you know, infatuated or having your heart broken 15 years ago, because um, we have strengths, we have skills, that we have love. Uh, we have perspective. It still hurts, you know, but, but that idea that, you know, we're not going to just relive it and relive it and relive it and relive it. That's not the point. Um, but to, to have a, a different relationship. And also, frankly, it's just too late. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I mean, you can't quite numb out that much anymore, right. you know. Um, because you know. Wow. Mm. Yes. That was the first thing I was going to say, but I thought that was too harsh. <laughs> oh, I love harsh. <laughs> That's great. Okay, it's too late. <laughs> cool. Courage, though. I think we want to talk about courage. Uh, let me tell one story, and then you could elaborate. Uh, and. Krishnadas is not here, right? Is he? Krishnadas? No. Sleeping. Um, but this is a story he tells, and he's told it before, and I don't know. It's worth repeating. I, I repeat it as much as possible for my own remembrance. He went to uh, Mumbai with a friend. They were looking for Maharaji. And he was with another Indian de devotee that we knew from uh, Delhi. And he found him, and he was told, okay, get a hotel room, and Maharaji would come over and visit. So Maharaji did. They got a hotel room. He came over and visit, and he'd just hang out on the bed and stuff. Then he, he did notice the, uh, there was a button to get, uh, to get service from the restaurant. So he, kept, he pressed the button. The guy would come up, upstairs, have Darsha, and he'd leave. He kept pressing the button. Every two minutes, this guy was coming up three flights of stairs, <laughs> get Darsha. Uh, and so he's just hanging there, and suddenly he says, courage is everything. 
in Hindi. And the Indian man who was with him said, oh, well, really, though, it's just grace of the guru. And Maharaji looked at him and went, how he used to point his finger, courage is everything. And Krishnadas, that was a big moment for him, and he, he talks about how for the rest of his life, whenever he's getting into any kind of jam or any kind of chaos or whatever it is, suffering, that comes to mind and that for him is a way to not numb himself out, to, to then use the resources that Sharon was talking about because courage is remembering you are and have those resources. But can you elaborate about courage in, from Buddhist point of view? Yeah, I mean, I also think that courage, sometimes the greatest courage is just saying this is what's happening right now. This is the reality of the present moment. This is it. You know, this is what I feel. This is what I'm afraid of. This is uh, how I'm looking at things. And, and um, having a kind of loving acknowledgement rather than, damn it, you know, this is what I feel. I knew I should have changed therapists long ago, <laughs> you know, but it's like, this is what I feel. This is it. Um, that's what is the springboard for being able to move on, you know? So that's what I think, you know, Duncan was really talking about was the courage to say, this is what's happening. This is the mm. truth of the present moment. Right. So awareness and mindfulness we're back to, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a, a technical question for you, if that's okay. Uh, do you only practice loving kindness meditation or do you do other forms as well? And, and how do you meter that out throughout your day or, or week mm -hmm. in your practice? Uh, I do other forms. I, you know, I started with uh, kind of a classic mindfulness practice and just this little bit of loving kindness at the end of the retreat in sort of a ceremonial way and then uh, in Burma, um, 1985, I did that three-month period of intensive loving-kindness practice. And for about four years at that point, I only did loving-kindness practice. Whether I was on retreat or I was just sitting each day, uh, I would just do loving-kindness. And then um, I switched back to mindfulness. That's when I had the experience of despair, um, interestingly enough. And... Uh, most of my daily practice is like an open awareness. It's just trying, you know, just being aware. Um, in my, my formal daily practice, I also have a kind of resolve to try to do loving kindness whenever I'm waiting, and I count every mode of transportation as waiting. So airplanes, um, those of you who will be on the shuttle with me tomorrow, uh, you know, walking down the streets of New York, uh, rather than doing something I'm not interested in doing or, you know, fretting, I actually just try to do loving kindness. Can you talk, Sharon, about motivation a little bit? Uh, in what? Well, two things. One is um, motivation within awareness. And the other thing is motivation in terms of inspiring that practice. What is motivating you to inspire that day-to-day -day practice? Um, hello? Hello, yeah. Oh, there you go. Uh, I think you can, you can think of motivation as in lots of different levels. You know, there's one level um, where it's aspiration, uh, and which doesn't mean greed or like um, being covetous. You know, it, I mean, it's really having a a big sense of what's possible for a person in a human life, not, not just feeling so compromised or settling. And I think, if anything, the, one of the signs of our time is that we live in a time of pretty blunted aspiration. Mm -hmm. um, I had one teacher uh, that I met through Lama Suridas, Nyasha Ken Rinpoche, um, who had been his teacher. And... Um, Sometimes in, in teaching us, he would, he would say, this is a, you know, a very big paraphrase, but he'd say something like, why is your sense of possibility so small? Like, why is it so 
meager, you know, why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? And I think some of what we see in meditation practice is the why not. You know, like I think so little of myself, or I think I'm capable of so little, or, you know, practices they say have worked for about 2,600 years, but they've hit a wall with me, you know, or whatever. And, and we, you know, we find that, and we also dissolve that, and we um, enjoy that sense of human possibility uh, in a very different way. And then there's motivation in just like an immediate sense, you know, like what gets you to practice every day. Um, and uh, the thing that motivates me to practice is, is really just making it real. Um, that was so schooled into me, you know, that the point isn't to admire somebody else and their extraordinary attainment or the Buddha, wow, you know, got enlightened under a tree 2,600 years ago, or, you know, if only I didn't live in such a noisy place, I would... Mm. You know, it's, that's the alchemy, that's the magic. It's like um, another teacher I met through Suryadas, uh, Tuku Organ Rinpoche, used to say the most important moment of your practice is the moment you sit down to do it. Cool. You know, because in that moment you're saying a lot about mm. belief in change and caring about yourself and human possibility and, you know, and it'll be different, whatever follows will follow. Each day it might be different, but... That's the moment, making it real. Mm. And, and that I, I really find very precious. See, I've been trying to tell you this for a long time, Duncan. I ask you how to and meditate I just all the put time. It in the, that you refuse to tell me how to meditate. I've asked you so many times. Really? You, yeah, you don't. You won't say. At one point, I thought there wasn't. We weren't supposed to meditate or something. I was really got confused. <laughs> At least that's what I told myself. Yes. It, okay. Have, is there? Is do there? Do you each day? Does he? Do you? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Please don't ask me that. Uh, do you? <laughs> Sharon, do you? May I ask you? Uh, so, we, in in these stories we hear of the saints. They always, a lot of them end up living in a cave. Do you think a cave is a prerequisite to this stuff? Let me tell you about my sublet in New York. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very, ca the last one was more cave-like. It was a little dark, but um, no. no. Um, well, you know, There's something that I think, um, it's not exactly a prerequisite, but uh, I think it's maybe a little tied to what I was saying about aspiration. You know, it's like, uh, if you look at our conversation, our conversation usually is about, can I get 10 minutes in a day? I don't know, you know, I've got a big to-do list and... You know, I mean, 10 minutes of practice a day is not exactly superhuman, but it feels like that to us. It's actually quite difficult to find 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day. And I just like the fact that really, if we understand the conversation, it's so much bigger than that. Mm. And it has, I don't think it has anything to do with the, the dwelling. You know, it has to do with... Um, taking some risks and, and being willing to give up what is conventionally understood to make us happy. And mm -hmm. um, do we really need to acquire more and more and more and more? Well, maybe not. Let's take a look at that. And, um, you know, the, I mean, I went to India. This is something we, we talk about a lot. And there's no knowing. I mean, I have no answer to it, but... You know, I went to India as, as we did in a time when, I mean, except for, you know, a few people like Ramdas being back here briefly and a few uh, Asian teachers starting to come, you know, you really had to have tremendous motivation mm. to find this stuff. Um, you know, I went to, I grew up in New York City. I went to college in Buffalo. 
There'd be one family trip to Florida, uh, and I went to India before I'd ever been to California. You know, and it's just like, you had to do it. So we did it. And, you know, nobody quite knows what it means that now it's so much more available and so much more accessible and, mm. um, and people don't necessarily need that kind of intense wish to learn or, or you know, heal or, or whatever. And some, of course, do, but you don't have to have that anymore because uh, it's all around. It's kind of an interesting time. Mm. Yeah. You know what's interesting is... Like, it just struck me. You just said, do you do the Chalisa mm -hmm. every day? I said, yeah. As well as Vipassanas from that time, all the way back in Bodhgaya. And these retreats really have always had a combination of bhakti yoga and Buddhism, Buddhist wisdom, every one of them. And so I have always, not to... I've always felt you so combine those two things and you've been such a part of us for so long. But I've never really asked you, how does that work inside of you? The, develop, the love that you've developed that is so present as well as the Buddhist aspect, including using skepticism and doubt and experimentation which is very different from Hindus. Just reflect on your own amalgam of that. Uh, yeah, it is kind of an interesting amalgam. Um, I mean, some of it is, is my nature, some of it is my life experience living in India. Uh, I went to Maharaji's ashram in Brindaban after he had died, you know, maybe three weeks after, four weeks after. Um, and felt a tremendous connection with him at that point, you know, having a couple of years before waved goodbye to the bus as it was going off. Um, uh, it kind of, it comes together for me, I think, in, in love. Um, and almost a combination of love and emptiness in a funny way. Um, in that uh, because of, I think, that my own strong Buddhist background, um, I would think that the point is not ultimately someone else's freedom. It's your own. And I think that's the point for them about you. You know, otherwise it would be a cult or it would be a, a very different kind of scene if it was just endless admiration of, mm. of somebody else. And I don't see it that way, you know. Um, I, uh, you know, feel, have felt tremendous devotion to my own immediate, like, meditation teachers, one after another. And it's been a little funny for me also listening, as one does, to all these sort of miracle stories of Maharaji because... That woman, Deepama, that I mentioned, who'd had such a you know, tremendous mm. sorrow in her life and was so compassionate, um, she was also kind of known for that stuff, too. Yeah. Uh, although by the time I met her, she was quite a bit older and she wasn't doing it all that much. But they say, um, you know, that she, <laughs> I love this one, she could take a potato and bake it in her hand and make it taste like chocolate. Wow. That's pretty good. That's a good one. <laughs> um, but honestly, like, who cares, you know? It's like thinking about her, even people who say they saw her do things like that, it, you know, it was like, wow, she was so loving. She was so compassionate. She was so generous. And she was really generous. She was really poor by our standards, you know? But that's what people talk about. It's like... The rest of it, it's almost like they put it in her book because that's part of the record or something like that, not because it matters to anybody. Yeah, right, right, right. Sharon, do you think that's real? Do you think that she could hold a potato in her hand and make it? In? Yeah, I do. So what do you, what, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, uh, both of you, what do you think 
I think it's fair if you hear these stories to then start considering, well, what is the physics behind that? What is the science behind that? What, what is your, ex if you had to offer an ex explanation that didn't involve, well, it's just miraculous and we can't understand it, how, why, why is that possible? What is going on in the background there? Where's Cliff? <laughs> um, I, of course, don't know the science of it. I don't feel that compelled to try to understand it because I don't care about it. I was once in a, um, I was doing a benefit for an organization and I was in a dialogue with somebody who was a scientist and, um, about questions of faith. My book had just come out, so that's what we were talking about. And it was very cordial. We agreed that science actually is based on not knowing. You know, that science is really this endless sense of discovery and not knowing. And then somebody in the room brought up, you know, I lived in India and I saw all these miracles and I saw people lying on beds of nails. And suddenly the person I was in dialogue with kind of felt like he did know that it was all garbage. And, um, you know, so somebody asked me what I thought. So I brought up Deepa Ma and I said, you know, they say she could do this. I never saw her do it. Uh, but honestly, I don't care that she could do it, you know. So it, it's not compelling enough for me to try to figure it out. I mean, I know a lot of people, for example, who draw a line and they say that is impossible or people walking through walls is impossible. But they don't blink at a story of like somebody going to see Maharaji and um, this is of course back in the day, you know, cell phones, no cell phones, no computers. Uh, calling America meant leaving a little town in India, going to a big city, placing a trunk call to happen 24 hours from then, shouting into the phone, you know, so uh, we all know many stories. I have a friend who went to see Maharaji and uh, he kept, he and his wife there for the weekend and then like on Sunday said, um, you have to call home, your mother needs you. You know, so he went through that whole long, intensive process and got to Delhi and booked the trunk call and finally got his mother on the phone and, and she said, oh, thank God, the State Department found you. And of course, the State Department hadn't found him, but Maharaji told him to call home. You know, so I have friends who say, well, that, of course, you know, the mind is just so expansive and so mysterious, and we don't know the boundaries of the mind, but the physical reality, that's the line. So that doesn't actually make that much sense to me. It's like they seem both sort of malleable mm -hmm. somehow to me. You know, we have somebody out here in the audience that has a question for you that only I know that they have a question. For you, yeah. Pete, are you here? Come on up. You have a question. <laughs> I want to hear Duncan's answer. You can ask Duncan <laughs> first. Do we have, a, do we have a, a mic that we can give Pete? Let's pull up a chair over here. He'll give you this one. Okay. Pete Holmes. Everybody, Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes. Pete is a good friend of Duncan's, and he's the first time at this retreat, and uh, he's also a podcaster, so I thought he should have a chance as well to go ahead and ask. You can ask anybody. But... I have a question. I'm not aware that I have a question. You have a question. <laughs> you know, you've been wrong before, Raghu. You keep confusing Duncan and I, which is strange. I, I love Duncan very dearly. But you keep saying that Duncan is the skeptic. He's the one that is like, you line everybody up that met Maharaji. Are they all liars? And I'm not that guy. But then the other day, graciously, you're talking with Ramdas, and you invite me over. And of course, my heart is jacked. I'm very excited to, to meet Ramdas. He's obviously very important to me. And the first thing you say, you go, this is Pete. He's one of those crazy kids that thinks we're all liars. <laughs> I didn't say it. Quite like. I punched you up a little bit, oh, but yeah, okay, that's okay. the essence of what you said. <laughs> and of course, I'm having a panic attack, and I go, that's Duncan, that's Duncan. <laughs> and screamed it out. It's not me! <laughs> Remember, the one that looks like Jim Henson if he did more drugs, he thinks you're full of shit. 
I'm the faith guy. Yes, you are. <laughs> well, he also gave me a thing. He said, I said, the love, because we were talking about Ted Nugent God. Yeah, that was, remember that, was that? us. Yeah. yeah, and then I said, well, the love is, just come in this room and just sit in this room. And obviously, that is what Maharaji is. It's that. And he said, well, you went over to India and you were actually sitting by that body and touched that foot and you think I should just stay in this room? Yeah. Right? That, is this, uh, yeah, there I am. That, that's been a big thing for me. I'm, I'm kind of getting over it as we're reaching the end of the retreat, but all, all the devotees that met Maharaji, I, I appreciate the idea that we can chant and Krishna Das can be up here or we can listen to a phenomenal teaching. But there is something to be said of, of the specialness of actually going to a physical place. And what I said to you that you conceded to was, yeah, but you touched his feet. You know what I mean? That sort of spiritual jealousy sounds negative, but it's really just kind of a yearning. When you hear a story of someone, Krishnadas was telling me that he saw the look on his friend's face after he had heard Ramdas speak and he knew that, oh, something was going on, that electricity that you feel, and then you're going into the presence of this, of this holy being and getting lit, getting lit up and, and on fire. And we're all, I think we can all relate to that. There's a certain left-outedness. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's in the neighborhood of suffering. You know what it reminds me of? It is. It's you know what I'm saying? I moved to Chicago to study improv, and when I got there, Del Close, who taught John Belushi and Farley and all those guys, had just died. And then I, I find out about Ramdas, and then you're like, well, guess what? Another Del Close is dead. So you keep missing him and missing not him. Ram missing Dass, him. We're not Ramdas. Not Ramdas. I have Ramdas. I got to talk to Ramdas, and you fucked that up for me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so sorry about that. But um, <laughs> I do want to point something out to you, though. Please. Okay, about, so Sharon was with us in India, and she has this story, which is, I did not get on the bus, I did not meet Maharaji, I met him later after he was out of that body, just by presence in, in, in Brindavan, and, and she's been, as, as you've just heard, close to us all these years, teaches with Krishnadas all the time, and, and, we, and is at these retreats on a regular basis, and Maharaji is, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't mean, we're talking about Surya Das's big Maharaji, that love, is in this being, along with all of this other wisdom, and she didn't have to meet that body. Here's a living example. Would have been nice to meet him, though, huh? <laughs> it would have been nice. Yeah, especially when I teach with Krishnadas, and he tells that story about the bus, and... We got on the bus, and then Ramdas and Danny had the discussion, and we turned right, and there he was. So I said, one of you know, one of the reasons we just talked together like last weekend or the weekend before, and I said, well, one of the things I think, I mean, I was 18 years old, and I had just discovered practice, and it was this amazing time in my life, and I actually don't really regret continuing my practice, but, but you know, trying to remember, like, what was going through my head that I didn't get on the bus. Mm. And I think part of it was like, they don't even know where he is. <laughs> They're just going to wander around, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Krishnadas, did it take, like, you found him in less than 24 hours? And he said, less than three. <laughs> in India, that's good. <laughs> that seems like a really long time. But you know what's been a mantra for me for this is, uh, David knows this, we talked a lot about this, was, and then what? So you meet Maharaji, and then what? You don't meet Maharaji, and then what? You're talking about feelings, and Katie was talking about ecstasy. You're waiting in line to meet Ramdas right here, and you see white lightning. Okay, and then what? A woman makes a chocolate baked potato, and then what? You eat the potato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, eat that potato, man. <laughs> and then Good what? Though? And then what? And, and then, then the what? potato's gone. Bring her another potato, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you eat the potato bathed in brilliant white light while you're chanting. Yeah. Something like that. I guess. You know what the then what is for me? The then what is, this is when I notice that something has shifted. 
is when I get on the phone with Bank of America after they've frozen my card. And to me, that's being even remotely kind to the person on the other line. That's my chocolate potato. That's my miracle. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. It's that. I think it's, it, it's, 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 the, it's for us, we're not Sharon Salzberg or Raghu Marcus. These are beings who had great karma and they ended up getting, getting for reals, you guys got the you got you got the thing, man. You know, when I was a kid, do you remember when you first found out that you'd never see a dinosaur? Remember yeah. that? How that felt? Yeah. I've been feeling it all week. That ache. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's the saddest, most poignant feeling when you realize I will never see uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, and you paste pictures of it all over your wall, but there's always the sadness that goes along with it. Well, these. Raghu Marcus saw a dinosaur. Yeah, no. And, and, it, and it's, it's an aching thing. But, but so I look at it from the perspective of, all right, well, I'm never going to touch the feet of some saint. I will never eat a mystical baked potato. But I, I can, you know, I, the next time I find myself about to lash out at some poor telemarketer sitting in a, in a cubicle somewhere, I'm going to be 4% nicer to them. And that's pretty cool, as far as I'm concerned. There's a chance that they're in India, they're a descendant of Maharaji, you're probably doing a very good thing. <laughs> no, but that's the and then what? That so you it. met him, but it's gone. We're just here, right? It might as well be I a dream. I never thought of it as gone. Not gone. Well, I don't mean gone, but I mean it's not physically happening anymore. Not that physical particular thing, no. Don't sharpshoot me, Raghu. <laughs> it's literally not happening right now. It's happening right now. I See? will fight you outside. <laughs> that <laughs> would be awesome. I... <laughs> Were By you in the, the retreat in 15? Pete Holmes just freaked out and started beating up everyone from the Love Serve Remember Foundation. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, if Bank of America... If, if these stories, and you know I love you, and I, I'm very, I value you very much, and I, I'm just giving you a hard time for fun. You too, Duncan. But uh, if the stories increase our kindness, then that's, and what? If there's more love, our experience, then that's, and what? Our experience, not the stories. Our experience comes along with just the intention of being here and sharing whatever this is. Mm -hmm. Wisdom, love, all of it that intention takes you back home and you want to continue, as Sharon talked about a container when we asked about real love, you want to continue to develop that container so that you are on a day-to-day -day basis, get it down or get it up from 4% kind to 20% kind. No way. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it, Duncan. You're kind. Uh, also, yeah. maybe you guys don't, need what we needed. That's kind of what I was saying before. Like, we had to go away to India. We had to, you know, live in kind of, it was in Maui. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Although it was very humid there too. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot rougher than here, you know. Maybe you don't have to have that. Yeah, well that's what Duncan said to kind of salve my heart. See, your kindness. You've saved me many times this retreat from little crises, and one of them was this. I won't have uh, Maharaji in the physical form, the small Maharaji, is that how you would say it? Yeah. But you were like, wouldn't it be a disappointment, I'm paraphrasing you, <laughs> wouldn't it be a disappointment if the divine came to you exactly how you expected it to show up? It doesn't right. seem like that's the kind of life we're living or the plane that we're on, that the way it happened for Raghu is that it happened to me. To, to put it in Sharon's term, there's another bus. You know, there's going to be another bus. There's going to be another thing. And I hope. Then, well, that's the, I think that's the, that the kind of the mind-blowing thing about this event or whatever this is, is that, and I was telling Raghu, one of my, I was, Cora and I were going through the Hanuman Chalisa to try to translate it, and uh, many lines are like, what are they talking about? Like, this is completely ununderstandable. But one of the lines I really liked is, uh, it is, I mean, it's very, it's, yeah, you have to... We'll go over it. We'll do a study group. Oh, no. You're I like in nothing. one of the only places on earth where going like, this Hanuman Chalice is a little esoteric, and people are like, come on now. <laughs> it's very relatable. No. 
No, it's fair. The monkey god? <laughs> Anywhere else. I had never heard of it before I got here. <laughs> no, it's like you feel when you're reading the translation that you're in a deep... It feels like deep Comic-Con level, like deep <laughs> stuff, yeah. like flew through a mountain, opened a grapefruit, danced on the moon, and he's, his fiction. hair's made of lightning. He danced, he's, he's, it's hard to understand. But one line I, one, one line I liked in it is, uh, one of the first lines is, I'm not smart enough for this. I'm not, I don't, my, my intelligence isn't great enough to, to comprehend this. And I really like that. That's something I can rest in. And I think that with this kind of thing... Uh, it's this, asking for more intelligence and wisdom. The translation I read basically said, I'm too dumb for this. And I'm that like, yes, that's it. Well, the guy that did that translation it was... just was. for you. <laughs> but, but the reason I bring that up is because... He, he, I'm sorry. The reason I brought that up is here's what's crazy to think is like, okay, what if Maharaji is the dandelion? And what if the thing you're lamenting over is a form that is now somehow through the ultimate miracle been transmitted into an entire group of people. So instead of being around one Maharaji, you're now around 400 of them, only that's too intense to deal with. So the way your mind's working with it is like, man, if only I could have met him, rather than being completely surrounded by different versions of him who have all gathered together in this place. That's a closer, even. Ah, Absolutely. Cool. <laughs> That's really what this is, which it, it all really is, just fingers of that love. Uh, and I think we're, where are we, Mike? Are you here even still? Are we, are we at the closing? I don't even know what time it is. We're there. Okay. So that's a good way to close it, though, with that thought, Duncan. Right. Right. Sharon, thank you so much for coming up here yeah, with all this craziness. Duncan, thank you. Thank Duncan you, Trussell and, and Pete Holmes. If you guys uh, want to stay just another moment, I am going to sing the entire Hanuman Chili song. <laughs> backwards. I'm going to do it backwards, as is my tradition. But uh, it's a little too easy and over the plate if you do it forwards for me. But uh, if you'd like to stay for that, those of you that get it will really get oh, it. Oh, and I'm going to do... I'll do a little uh, promo here. Um, all of uh, Sharon and Lama Suryadas, who's sitting here today, and Ramdas and Krishnadas and Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein, our entire family from back in the day, these podcasts like this are on mindpodnetwork.com, including what I do with David Silver called Mind Rolling. So just a little. Go ahead and listen. And how about a round of applause for Raghu? This is an exceptional, yeah. exceptional man. It's been wonderful. Thank you.